You are listening to Music Matters, an ongoing journey of sonic discovery and sound wisdom fueled by passion and driven by discussion. Music Matters brings to you a unique fly-on-the-wall glance into the voluminous and seductive world of music. Here are your hosts, Tim Bishop, Joe Randazzo, and Dave Rayburn. Kent Jones. Not familiar. Yeah. Calvin Harris? I know Calvin Harris. I know Calvin Harris because he wasn't he the guy that was dating. No, he was uh, the guy. I don't know. Who no, he was the guy with Hobbs, the the tiger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but he was dating. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was dating Taylor Swift, and there was a big thing where she like Weren't upgraded to Tom Hiddleston a few weeks back. I'm pretty sure. I That's was how dating, I know he dating is. her. At but one you look time. at these names on the Billboard Hot 100. We're supposed to be these big like music freaks, and we don't. I don't know anybody. Yeah. Um, Drake is on like 19 tracks. That's a duck. Yeah, it is. Okay. It is. But, you know, it's a trip how, like, when you look at these things and everybody in the hip-hop world, it's this featuring this person. And the sense of collaboration is so cool, but can anybody do anything by themselves? Yeah, it's like, then they used to put the credits inside the booklet? Now they got to be in the song title? <laughs> Welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of Music Matters. On this episode, among other things, we're going to review the book Under the Big Black Sun, A Personal History of L.A. Punk by John Doe and Tom DeSavia. We're going to listen to music by Laurie Carson, Dead Rock West, Rob Perez, and M Squared. We're going to have a discussion about our favorite albums of 2016 so far, and an interview with the band 1913, starting with their track, Bye Bye. Yeah, 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 yeah. At the floating river, it gave to me a quiver. Tired of the world, looking down from a star.
That was Bye Bye from 1913 off their new album, Music for Time Travel. We've got a couple special guests on the phone with us this week. Victor DeLorenzo and Janet Schiff calling from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They're the primary members of 1913. Welcome aboard, guys. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dave and company. It's nice to be with you all. Thanks for taking the time to do this with us. Not many people know about the band yet, and so we'd like to help get that word out there. Can you tell us a little bit about how 1913 began, how you guys met, and what kind of music you're pursuing as a duo? I think I'll hand it over to my partner, Janet Schiff, and she can explain the beginning origins. Victor and I were put on a couple experimental projects together over a summer about six years ago, and it was a series of three concerts, and it was about the Machine Gun Concerto by uh, Professor Mark Mantell of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And um, I've used drummers for years, and at that point I was in between drummers, so I asked Victor if I could have his phone number because I wanted to work with him sometime in a different way. And um, he said yes. So a few weeks later I had a gig lined up with my cello and my moving pedal and asked Scott Johnson and Victor, if uh, they would join me for a concert. So 1913 is named after the year that the cello was made, and Victor has his own rendition of how that night went. Yeah, one thing that was fascinating about that night, at least to me now and also at that moment in time of that evening, was that Janet had called me in the afternoon and said, would you come out and play some music? I said, sure, I would love to. What should I bring? And she said, whatever you would like. So I decided to just bring a snare drum and a cymbal. And I went to the place called Circle A, which is in the river west part of Milwaukee here. And when I went there, I found out that there was another drummer named Scott Johnson. He had a full sit-down drum set. He was a rather big gentleman, and he had uh, mallets that he used a lot on this full drum set. So we played the show, and I was happy that he was there because I didn't really know the material, so I could follow him, follow his lead. So afterwards, we started talking, and I said, Scott, it was so great to have you here because I didn't know any of the material, and it was nice to be able to follow you. And he said, well, I was following you. You mean you didn't know the material either? (laughs) So so it was a total uh, mind alteration there that Janet had set up for the two of us, unbeknownst to the two of us. But it was a really great experiment, and then we started playing as a three-piece for quite a while. But now we're at the point where Janet and I have distilled ourselves down to just the duo, the two of us, and that's what's featured on the new album, and that's what's also featured on some of the recordings that we're doing right now as well. You know, the the new record, to me, it, it plays out in a very theatrical sense, to my ears. Um, it's almost like watching a movie. Yeah, a lot of different scenes with different dramatic things happening in a way it kind of reminds me a little bit of the uh, the Lou Reed John Cale songs for Dreller album in in the sonic sense but as far as the category of music um, I've heard it called a lot of different things how would you guys describe the genre of what you perform I like to call it chamber rock other people would call it jazz or that it would fit under the umbrella of jazz or art rock. A little bit of a classical influence. Right. I'm inspired also by 1980s pop and 
goth music even. <laughs> so, but you picked up on a theatrical quality, and most of the recordings there were used for a dance performance, which was also a play mm-hmm. by Danceworks and a group called the Milwaukee Cooperative Performance. And they used, they asked us if we would make um, a soundtrack for their upcoming performance. Now this was back about a year ago, we were asked, and um, we decided the best way to go about it so they could use it for rehearsals and the performance would be for Victor and I to record and then give them access to our uh, library. And so we provided these recordings, and then we kept recording because we were having so much fun, and we thought that we could just keep going and make a full-length LP. Yeah, we turned uh, those initial recordings into a whole collection of recordings. And we we were so inspired that we're still recording now. We're we're doing um, a piece now, which the the working marching orders are. It's it's going to be some kind of a work that's dedicated to the the work of Brian Eno. So uh, it'll be uh, a little bit more of, of what was started in some of the pieces that you find on the new 1913 album, Music for Time Trial. So as far as the new record, what would be the time frame of the material that you've recorded along the way that went into this, as far as when they were recorded? When it was recorded, it was, it was uh, started to be recorded November of last year. And then we were finished by going into the holiday season at the end of December. Because we wanted to, as Janet mentioned, we wanted to turn in the music to the company so they could have music to rehearse with. And a lot of the music that we turned in ended up in the final production. There was no changes done to the music. Are you taking these songs on the road, or do you, do you, how often do you find yourself in public performing together? We perform quite a bit. In fact, we're going to be playing this coming Friday at the famous Fister Hotel here in Milwaukee. Uh, part of a gallery night that happens in Milwaukee uh, quite a few times during the year now. And so we'll be featured at an after-party there. And we're also doing um, a special for the Milwaukee version of uh, PBS here, the television station. They're they're doing a special about us. And we do about one big gig once a month, and then maybe a couple smaller ones. We like to stay busy, and when we're not performing, we're recording, we're rehearsing, we're having meetings. The planning. We want to do an art museum tour. Oh, that would be great. That that was actually going to be one of my questions. Is there a particular venue or style of venue that you have a a preference for? So we play from punk rock clubs in Chicago to the beautiful Paps Theater here in Milwaukee uh, to outdoor festivals. We just opened up for the Avid Brothers in front of about four thousand people. So we we have figured out, or we're starting to figure out more and more, I should say, how to translate the music to different size audiences and also to incorporate some of the things that are happening on the new record. Uh, The biggest case in point, having some vocals now. Janet and I have crossed that barrier where it's not just instrumental music. We're starting to think about our voices as well. Yeah, I was just going to ask about that. Obviously, we just came into this segment playing Bye Bye. It was great to hear your voice again, Victor. And um, who else performs on that? Who is that Janet's voice singing the uh, echo part? Janet has the ghostly asides, <laughs> and I'm singing the vocal. And when we originally thought of doing a song for David Bowie, we didn't know which kind of form it would take. Uh, and then I got to the point where I was starting to imagine some kind of a lyric. 
because we were greatly influenced by David Bowie in his life, of course, but also in his death. It was quite a shock, as it was to, to many people in the world. But then we figured out how would we best pay homage to him. And I started thinking of these lyrical ideas, and I put it to Janet, because normally we just do beautiful instrumental music that Janet writes. But in this case, I said, let's, is it okay if I would maybe write some lyrics and see what you think about them? And Janet was open enough to it, and so I presented her with some stuff. And then we developed the melody, and um, then you have what you have when we hear it in recording. And we essentially, we did a whole demo recording just to figure out the song and if it was worthy of, of uh, David Bowieisms, because there's a lot of little lyrical twists in there that pay homage to him, and then also some sonic things. But we did a whole demo that we threw out. We took the demo to fruition, then we threw it out, and then we recreated the whole thing just to really make sure the recording was up to snuff. So I'm, I'm happy with uh, all aspects of it, and I think Janet likes it too. And do you like your ghostly uh, signs, Janet? Yeah, I'm coming out from behind my cello all of a sudden. But you know, we're using um, more of our musical capabilities this way, and I mean, I'm playing a lot of keyboards on this album, and even in, in that song, we've we've made some new instruments, which are combinations of keyboards and cellos um, combined in a way that. Um, you wouldn't really know what to listen for or what kind of instrument you're you're listening to um, unless you're told this, like right now. <laughs> I have to ask, would you consider the idea of doing something that was inspired by David Bowie to be something that maybe did expand your musical horizons? Probably what we're doing is exploring a lot of our own individual pasts and, and the past we have together, albeit it's only been about close to seven years. But we, we have some reference points, Janet and I, between the two of us. But I, I think our musical tastes between the two of us are quite different, even though there are some interlaps. But I think just coming into it, I know from my aspect, which is one of being a participant in 1913 in the musical sense, then being a producer, and then also being the, the chief engineer on the project, I had to always be ready to make sure I had the right suit of clothes on to respond to something and, and approach Janet in different ways about, well, as an engineer, can we try this? Or is this what you want to accomplish? Because when you get right down to it, it's it's a lot of drums and cello. So the challenge was to give a vibrancy and a real uniqueness to the sound that we could cultivate in all the different little worlds that we try to present. I was amazed by how many different recording techniques we could squeeze into this album. Uh, Victor had me sometimes going direct, sometimes going through an amp, going through a, an effect, all different types of um, isolation rooms or um, miking from near or afar. We tried to make it so that it didn't sound uh, monotonous at all. Yeah, just so the variance in the cello and the drum sounds and I'm I'm particularly happy with the drum sounds being a drummer of course but uh, being an engineer too I, I really had fun getting some of the drum sounds that that I contained in that recording yeah I was gonna say um, you're creating a lot of new instruments with what you're doing uh, production wise and and just until recently I wasn't aware that you had sort of an engineer thing going on how long have you been tinkering with things like that 
And uh, and my next question here is the the track "Summertime," which is immensely haunting and involves a lot of different elements to it. So, if you can give me a little background on your what you've been doing production and engineering wise, and then tell us how you put together "Summertime." Well, to start at the very beginning, I I think of sound and how it first affected me, and how I could capture sound for the first time. And the reason I could do that was because when I was ten years old. My father presented me, via a friend of his that was selling these things, a little AOA reel-to-reel tape recorder with with tiny little three-inch reels. And I had this tape recorder which allowed me to record sounds off the television or just record talking, maybe eavesdropping on my parents and and their uh, my aunts and uncles, uh, so be it. But anyway, I was fascinated by recording. And I never even thought of it in a musical way until quite quite a bit of time later. But then just being involved with music via usual grade school opportunities. And then finally being in a rock band when I was about 16 years old. That was the final clincher. But I started out, as I said, with just having tape recorders from nine years old on. And then I had a drum set and also... Uh, instruction in piano and guitar. So I, I play different uh, melodic instruments as well, besides drums. Getting to the track Summertime now, I, I read a little bit about it, and from what I understand, there's a, a bit of time travel in this particular track. Janet, can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Um, well, my grandmother, Margie Schiff, was one of the first women ever to get a college degree, and it was in music. She was a performer. She was um, a vibrant personality in Milwaukee and um, in Chicago also. She performed on the uh, trains, the streetcars, hotels, uh, silent movies, and then talkie, talkie film, as she called them, uh, vaudeville and things along that, um, parties. Anyway, so I've, um, I've always been fascinated by her life. And my father gave me a recording of her doing 30 songs, and some of them in- included uh, vocals, accordion, uh, piano. This one was just instrumental, an organ. So um, I played it for Victor once, and then for about yeah. about two years, he kept asking me to give it to him. Yeah, I wanted I wanted to have a copy of it because I had this idea that maybe we could build a song structure around it. So the impetus of the whole song starts with her playing the second time through the piece, which is essentially she was soloing over the changes. And we felt that there was certain things that we could do, either placing it at the very beginning, placing it in the middle of the piece, or placing it at the end. As it happened, it, it fell into the, the middle of the piece after some experimentation. But it was nice to time travel in a way, as you mentioned just before, in that here was Janet Schiff being allowed to play with her grandmother, who she never had a chance to play with, from 1961 recording. And here she was joining it in uh, 2015 technology. That's just truly amazing. And, and then we decided that we would bring in the brilliant jazz bassist and well just any kind of music bassist i should say rob wasserman out in los angeles we sent him the track and he added his bass parts 
and just a fantastic performance and, and a wonderful gentleman and and really an honor for Janet and I to have uh, had some interplay with him. I can imagine he's uh he was a phenomenal uh, player. He appeared on so many of my favorite records from Lou Reed to Rat Dog to Dead Rock West and and now this new album which I don't know this could possibly have been one of his last sessions. It's sad to know that that sound which was a pretty unique sound to my ears there're just a handful of bassists that I really can identify in an instant and yeah, Rob Watson Rob was one of those guys. How no, another t- I just wanted to interject really quick another testament to Rob is that I had worked with him in a few few previous settings. But in regard to this recording, uh, Janet and I first put down a guide cello track imitating a bass part. Then we had the wonderful vocalist Manya, who's featured on the track, come in and just sing to that and some kind of a time reference. I forget what kind of a little click. I think it was just a very, just a straight click. And Manya came in and saying what you hear on that finished recording in one take. And I seriously mean in one take, we did not fix a syllable of that recording. So she, she responded to that. Then I put drums on to that. Then we sent that to Rob. And the way Rob plays with my drum track is just amazing. And I, the arrangement that we finally came up with too that features many, many tracks I think there's about 125 tracks in that recording. You don't hear everything, but there's a lot of layers of Janet's cello work and also Rob's bass work. How wonderful it is for my grandmother to have such a cool band. Huh? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rob Wasserman, Manya, me, of course, and Nez was on there, too. That's right, our friend Nez, who played some percussion on there. Oh, that's so great. It's just such a beautiful track, and it's uh, it's embellished even more by the story behind it, you know, in all aspects. So, uh, yeah, there's one more Milwaukee connection. Uh, the, the recording studio in Los Angeles, which was called Winslow Court, uh, uh, what is uh, Craig Parker Adams was the mm-hmm. recording engineer and the owner. It turns out that at one time, I think in the late 60s, one of the famous owners of the studio, which originally I think was built in the early 20s as a Foley studio in Los Angeles to apply sound effects to film. But anyway, one of the owners in the late 60s, here's your Milwaukee connection, Liberace. (laughs) Wow. So that's another haunting of this recording. I really think the recording is haunted in many ways. Let's take a listen, shall we? Here's 1913 and Summertime.
That was Summertime, 1913's interpretation of the George Gershwin American Music Classic and a wonderful recording. And thank you again for the detail on how that was put together and what all went into it. I wasn't aware that so many tracks were involved because, like you said, you really don't hear it. But there's got to be so many subtleties in there that uh, that really make the whole picture that much brighter. Yeah, we're very, very proud of that recording. And that, in so many ways, informed and paved the way for our, our new record. We had originally come up with the idea, and, and of course, it started out as a dream. But then more, we tried to work on making it a reality. 
it, it just fell into place and we were just so grateful that we had that chance and that Rob was so into what we were trying to do because it was it was hard to explain to him how we were going to fill out the rest of the skeleton, especially in light of the way I told you how the recording was put together. So he, so there was uh, probably about 95% of his musicianship and his uh, wonderful personality. And then there was there was a little bit of percentage there of he had to go in good faith with us. That's a fantastic record. Again, it's called Music for Time Travel. Is this a, a digital-only uh, product, or can this is this being made as a physical product as well, or are there plans to? Well, we have a CD available, but just in small numbers that we just sell at shows. Okay. But we're looking uh, eventually to have it available on vinyl, but it is available in most or through, I should say, most digital outlets. Yeah, if someone wants a copy of it, they can get in touch with us, and we can do a PayPal situation, send it to them. They want a physical copy. Okay, so they can get it at iTunes, or they could get in touch directly through your website? Yeah. And what would that website be? It's 1913.com, and we spell out the words 1913. And where else is uh, 1913 on the Internet? We have SoundCloud slash 1913 spelled out. We also have uh, Facebook, which wouldn't let me have that many letters, so it's 19 spelled out with the number 13. And then we also have Twitter, which is Twitter slash 1913MKE. So there's a lot there that confuse you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They'll find it one way or another. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, just Google us. Now, Victor, I've got a question. Um, I, I'm a fan of some of your solo records, uh, Post-Violent Femmes, and I'm kind of curious, would any of those songs somehow be transformed into 1913 songs down the road? Is that something you're, you've thought about doing? Boy, uh, I think probably because of our newfound freedom, the way Janet and I think about the group, anything really is possible at this point. So I, I certainly wouldn't outlaw something like that kind of an idea. But uh, for now, we seem to be just floating along this, as I mentioned before, almost an Eno-infused kind of, uh, how would you even describe it, Janet? We're in the ethers right now. A lot of keyboards, a lot of uh, mystical-sounding drums, uh, maybe some lyrics coming out featured a la some of those Eno records where he's singing. Any plans to bring uh, your show out to the West Coast? We would love to. Where can we play? We're there. My living room's not that big, but you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Let's plan it. We'll come out there. Well, one one funny thing in, in closing, I guess, is is that we did have plans to come out there because my son lives in Los Angeles. We were thinking about doing some recording with him. And the sad part of uh, this story is that we were hoping to get out there and, and do some more recording with Rob. We had talked roughly this idea, which he was enthusiastic about as well, uh, a record called Punk Rock Christmas. And we were going to do all kinds of rock versions of Christmas songs. But um, we still might do that. But, um, uh, of course, we won't be able to be graced by his uh, wonderful presence. All right, Janet and Victor, I want to thank you guys so much for taking the time to, uh, to talk with us this afternoon from afar. And we certainly hope to pass the word around about the new record and get the uh, awareness out there to help you guys out. It's truly great stuff. Thanks, guys. Well, thank, thank you. you. And I hope I hope we weren't too uh, boring or didn't supply that much dead air. And, and if we were kind of boring, you can always play this interview backwards and it'll be a lot more entertaining. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very, very much, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much, you guys. It was really fun. Thank yeah, you. The pleasure Thank was you. ours. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye from Milwaukee. Bye-bye. Postcards from another time Photographs with love inscribed Scrawled in your familiar hand Reminders of the promises and plans Imagine love is all Dead Rock West, and you're listening to Music Matters. 
Rock West featuring the lovely Cindy Wasserman, taken from their 2015 album It's Everly Time. Prior to that, you heard Imagine Love by Lori Carson, a duet with Greg Allman from her debut solo record Shelter from 1990. Rob Wasserman featured on both of those tracks. For those of you that have been listening or those that have just started listening, I want to let you know uh, Music Matters has a Facebook page. You can find us at facebook.com forward slash music matters hq so please if you're on facebook come join us friend us you'll get a lot of great information a lot of uh useless tidbits um beyond our facebook presence music matters is now on itunes yay yay so if you choose to listen to your podcast on itunes please find us there subscribe and you will not miss an episode i know i won't all right we are joined on the line by our man on the street or should i say highway Mr. Eugene Edwards. Hello, everybody. Hello, Gene. Hi. Hello from, from the Ortega Highway, the 74. <laughs> well, that, that's a winding highway. Be careful out there. I'm literally on the road. <laughs> so, yeah, nobody goes to Sacramento on purpose. That's a job. Uh, yes, I am going, yeah, going to Sacramento on purpose to play the uh, state fair. Nice. That's great. I did not get invited. I belong to this state. I feel bad. Yeah, well, you're paying for it. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Hey, Gene. Bands that sound like law firms. I'll start you off. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Yeah, the worst defense team of all. (laughs) Especially when it comes to... uh... Now, wouldn't that be Cosby, Stills, Nash, and Young? No, first of all, you've got to bail out Mr. Crosby in order to defend you in court in the first place. It's okay. Yeah. And and then Mr. Young refuses to be up here in court with the other three. It's a big brother and holding company. Ooh. Peter Bjorn and John. <laughs> I think the Almond Brothers kind of kind of like. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, but yeah. some work and some don't. Like Brooks and Dunn sounds like either an investment firm or a place where you buy like high end male clothes. No, no, that sounds like, like a, a big. In- that sounds like that's a big and tall men's shop. Yeah, that's Brooks what and, that yeah. is. Yeah, oh, yeah, Brooks so and Dunn. Yeah. That- oh, oh, Spencer <laughs> Davis Group. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, bone, uh, th- bone thugs and uh, harmony. Uh, yeah, Maybe. Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm out. I got nothing. Right. I'm I'm yeah. out on bail. You know, so, <laughs> so, so since we last all spoke, I do believe we've all read Under the Big Black Sun, a personal history of LA Punk by John Doe and Tom DeSavia and friends and friends there were a lot of friends on that book yes. yeah there were lots um although it carries their names um John Doe wrote chapters interspersed through the book they're sort of every other chapter and chapters are by people like Exine Cervanka, Jane Weedland, Pleasant Gaiman, Chris Morris, Robert Lopez who's also known as Elvez here in LA, mm-hmm. uh, Teresa Covarrubias from The Brat which has put out one of my favorite records of that era 
uh, Henry Rollins, Chris D of the Flesh Eaters, the uh, the Immortal Mike Watt, Watt. Caffey, Jack Grisham, Dave Alvin, <laughs> Christine McKenna, it, and everybody writes their own personal ruminations of a certain time in Los Angeles when uh, punk was starting. And um, it's kind of funny because a lot of it revolves around a club called The Mask. And The Mask is sort of Woodstock's L.A. It's like anybody who's into alternative music of a certain age was like, yeah, I was there, which is complete bullshit because nobody was there. (laughs) There was nobody. There was never more than like 100 people. Well, there wasn't room for more than 100 people. At any given time. And it's just a ridiculously famous place to L.A. music. The basement of a pussycat porn theater. And and most of the people that were at the show were the bands that were waiting to go on next or had just yes. left the stage. <laughs> so they weren't really uh, a whole lot of people yeah. flooding in. Yeah, owned and operated by Brendan Mullen, yep. who uh, was the booker at Club Lingerie for like 20 years until that place closed. And I remember him and I just didn't, you know, I was too young. I didn't know he was the mask guy. Oh, are you going to claim you were there, there too? No. Okay. No. Yeah. I was in like <laughs> junior high school when the mask was happening. Uh, my mom wouldn't let me go. So. He wouldn't let me go. Mm. <laughs> but it's just a really uh, everybody paints a very vivid and individual interpretation of the time, and it's not so much about punk; it's just about sociology of L.A. of that time period. Yeah, it was about their time, whatever the music might have been. Uh, I don't think it mattered if it was punk or country or whatever it was. In fact, they actually mention a lot of it. Mm. Original references were hillbilly country and uh, you know stuff that were origins of. American music in general. Beyond the genres, the that punk community, that particular punk community, was very welcoming to gays, Latinos as well. It wasn't just uh, welcoming different aspects of of the punk genre, which of course it did splinter yeah. off to a lot of you know, like you got your roots and your rockabilly, and then yeah, the whole it, Latino experience is but, a big part of it. Yeah, how bands like the Blasters, who weren't punk at all, were able to integrate, and it seemed like one thing at the time. I guess it still does to us. Mm-hmm. There's some great stories in there, like Jane Weedlin, where she's sort of like a San Fernando Valley uh, glitter rocker, finding herself among the shenanigans of the burgeoning punk scene while fighting depression, a harrowing and funny warm tale of teenage suicide attempts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, something we can all relate to. Yeah, sexual experimentation. There is that bondage moment in there. Uh, yeah. And the after effects. And also she... Uh, lived in the Canterbury Apartments, right. which is a place that a lot of the people of the band, especially the women... I'd say lived. that was the West Coast Chelsea Hotel during that yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Mike Watt chapter is just, uh, it's just a gleeful and sort of wildly emotional ride about starting off with nothing but friendship and creating something wonderful and lasting. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, and it's written in that crazy watch spiel style that... It's com- com- completely refreshingly free of any sort of punctuation of any kind. It sort of defies you to read it, but it's just, it's easily the most emotional chapter in the book. Yeah, it's not like Hemingway. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's, a, he's a zero to 60 guy for sure. Totally. I think the, his music reflects that too. You know, the, the thing I like about the book the most was that, you know, I don't think anybody was really glamorizing what they had gone through. They were just talking about the time they'd spent there. Mm-hmm. And I was really starting to think about who is it in that scene that wasn't included in this book as a contributor? And really, the only people of note that I could come up with were those that are no longer alive. Yeah, Jeffrey Lee Pierce and um, Darby. Darby. I mean, Crash. yeah, the, the people that are gone are the only ones that really didn't participate here. It was a well thought out and well contributed book. I think it speaks well of, of all people, John Doe, that I think that to this day he can call anybody up at any time for anything and people will show up for him. 
what, what's kind of funny is, is earlier this week, I was hanging out at this guitar shop in my neighborhood uh, called Future Music. It's on York Boulevard. There's a plug uh, in Highland Park. And the guy who owns it, uh, Jack, he uh, was in it, well, still is in the band, uh, Green on Red. Oh, wow. And, and we were just, he was just talking, because I'm in the middle of the replacements book, so I was kind of goading him for replacement stories, of which he had plenty. And what he said, the thing to remember about about all the bands in that scene at that time, not just in L.A., but just nationally, was he says, you have to remember, none of us even kidded ourselves about getting a shot at the top. Meaning, at the very same time that this was all happening, the best-selling bands were Journey and Ario Speedwagon. So all you had to do was just listen to the radio or eventually try an MPP and say, well, they're not going to... We're not going to get over there. It just wasn't. It wasn't on the agenda whatsoever, and so that kind of fostered uh, anything goes ethic. And then that meant well, anything that wasn't going to be mainstream. If it was rockabilly music, if if the band happened to be mostly gay, if it, whatever they were doing, it was fine as long as it clearly wasn't trying to get on the top ten. And that was almost a common denominator. Eventually, as the 80s went on, some of those bands did eventually move up to that level, but that surprised everybody. So, yes, it was kind of insular, but all-embracing at the very, very same time. You know, and I think that is sort of the glory of that scene and, and that time. Yeah, it was kind of cool. I was uh, like a damned super fan when I was in high school. It was really cool in the book for several people to mention that when the damned first pulled through town, you know, they were the first English punk band to play here, that they sort yeah. of showed everybody how to do it. <laughs> everybody went to those shows, and everybody was like, "Oh, okay, that's how we do." It. <laughs> and you know what? I uh, one thing that I really love about the book is the writing of John Doe and the Exine chapter because they're going back to a time of that really classic writing time for them, and the writing in the book has the same like smoke and glare of X songs of that era. Mm-hmm. Short and sweet, yeah, but sometimes really brutal, deep, yeah. But, you know, there's there's emotion in there, too. And I don't mean to contradict Definitely. myself because I was saying, you know, that it, it's not romanticizing anything. But I don't know if you can entirely eliminate that from your past. I mean, even the roughest times in your life, you still look back on with some sort of nostalgia. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it got you where you are today. And you know, also, the, the music from the L.A. punk scene was not nearly as cynical as some of the other locales. Yeah, you're um, right. Yeah. No, but there's just, just a lot of heart, especially in X's songs. It was it was on their sleeve, you know. They didn't. Uh, it, it was subversive, maybe musically, but lyrically, there was always a, a lot of honesty. It seemed like, and and it does make sense because those songs at the time were really kind of reportage songs of what was happening immediately. So it makes sense that you know all these years, and they look back, they can't help but just write in that mode. It, it was probably a very very direct time, you know. And I, I like the idea of music for an individual that maybe can blossom into an audience, but it. If it's for yeah. if it's for self, that's pretty darn cool. Yeah, and it, it, the book's really cool how it does. It's not just the mask. Um, punk sort of happens in several different locations around Los Angeles. There's sort of an East LA outbreak. There's the whole South <laughs> Bay outbreak with uh, SST and Black Flag and all that stuff. And it gets into you know it's something that I went through. I was attracted to a lot of these bands, but the shows were just too damn dangerous at that age. <laughs> and it. I didn't realize at that age that going to see Black Flag wasn't the same thing as going to see X. And it took, oh it took and they, uh, my uh, gateway band was the Plimsolls. They were the band that oh. I saw several times before I grew enough balls to go see X. <laughs> and it was great to see them name checked in part of the scene in the book as well. Just hearing like some of these, just again, some of these outlandish stories of 
Dave Alvin talking about how Queen asked the Blasters to open up um, for them on West Coast dates. Um, or, or hearing Mike Watt talk about one of his first songs he wrote um, that remains unreleased called Bass King from Outer Space, where within the lyrics of the song, he kills the band with a bass solo. <laughs> stuff like that's, that's just... That's like a precursor to Tenacious D or Stuff something. like that's just crazy. It makes me smile. But uh, there's a lot of sad elements to this, too. A lot of lives were lost. And we were all aware of uh, Exine losing her sister in an accident the night that X was playing a couple sets at the Whiskey. Whiskey yeah. What I didn't know, and I learned in uh, Christie's chapter... That Steve Naive was actually was in the in car the with him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. I didn't know that until that. Yeah. I, I read that either. Yeah. I didn't. I knew he was hurt in an accident. I didn't know it was a bad accident. Yeah. yeah. And I had known uh, through Steve directly that he and John and Exine had worked together, but I didn't know they had a mm. friendship going back that far as well. And for it all to be wrapped up with this part of the story as well, which is really just you know, heartbreaking. And I think that's. Mm. I think that's where the song "Writing with Mary" came from. Was following that. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of good and bad, a lot of smiles and, and cries in, in this book. I, I, uh, I, I dipped my toe into this scene a lot when I was a kid, you know, in and out. And like Joe had mentioned, a little bit out of trepidation because what am I getting myself into? But I, it's something that I was just inexorably drawn to. I couldn't pull myself out of. So I, I kind of skidded on the periphery. But as I've gotten older now and the bands that have survived and the, the members of the bands that survived, it's been, uh, it's been a great pleasure to have had them part of my life. Yes, this book's a huge part of our lives. I have been enjoying the audiobook and the ebook as well, but um, in, in going with the, the audiobook aspect of it here, I guess in closing in this segment, um, I'd like to play a little clip of something that Henry Rollins recorded for my girlfriend a few years back. Um, oh. <laughs> a, a little. Uh, no, I heard about this. Have yeah, you heard good. this? Oh, it's good. No, but you told me about it. I didn't know I was going to hear it. That's fantastic. I'm so, excited. So, I'd like to introduce and play uh, an unreleased chapter of the Under the Big Black Sun audiobook. Something that will not be on, uh, <laughs> not be out there in the mainstream, except here on this podcast. An exclusive. Here's Henry Rollins. Hello, this is Henry Rollins. You've reached the voicemail service of Shelley English. Shell isn't here right now, but she asked me to handle her incoming calls until she gets back. I think she's out with Dave at yet another John Doe concert. Either that, or she's off exposing the mindless, nonchalant use of failed spelling and grammar in a society that is far more concerned with saving time than saving face. Or, and this is most likely what she's doing, she's out fighting the constant injustices of poor customer service within the tattered remains of what passes for the American marketplace. I mean, seriously, Dr. Pepper sounds not enough like Diet Coke to get them confused. Sorry, I just needed to get that off my chest. In any case, I'm going to need you to leave your name, number, and a brief message. If she gets back at a decent hour... I'll have her give you a call. And if this is a telemarketer, God help you. Rollins out.
That was Rob Perez and his brand new track, Sleeping in the Rain. You may notice the familiar Led Zeppelin rain song tuning on that number. Uh, Rob has produced several albums for the Ziggins and is also a member of Bert Suzanka's Astronaut Love Triangle, as well as the Jelly of the Month Club. Check him out. New music for 2016. 2016. Yeah. Some, some good stuff so far. Um, we're about halfway there. And I think we've all kind of just thrown together some notes about some things so far that have wowed us. I actually find myself with a list that's a little bit longer at this point of year. So I'm wondering if my listening habits haven't changed a little bit. But uh, right now I've got about, well, whatever a handful is, things that I've just been listening to with great regularity. Yeah, I've only got six or eight things on my list. There might be a few honorable mentions, but it's really not as thick as some years. I got too many. All right. Well, (laughs) six or eight. Yeah, for the year so far. I have two. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, all right, I'm impressed. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm hoping that uh, all of us probably have at least one of these, maybe uh, with the exception of Gene, who's going to have negative two of each of these on his list. (laughs) Yeah, there's one that I think we should just mark off right at the beginning because I think it's on everybody's list. Oh, let me guess. Yep. Does it rhyme with Black Star? It rhimes with Black yeah. Star. Okay, yep. it's Black Star by Bowie. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a gimme. And not only because it's the final record, um, he's always put out quality work, but this was just a huge jump. I mean, this is just a spectacular record. Yeah. And yeah, the- it, it, here's the, the term, a very challenging, and this is it, that's a great word for it, but it's not a turnoff at all. No. It just really, really expects you to be very, very patient. Uh, it, it's, it, and that's what really impresses me. He, almost made with the the idea that I, I know things take a while but i have a feeling the audience will, will hang in there for this one and and he was right yeah yeah he got that one right um <laughs> case lang and veers the uh yeah the, the, i've been listening to that the, as this, well yeah the super group with nico case katie lang and, and uh laura veers is, is it mere does is it mere's uh nico case feel like she's sort of in charge of that group when no i didn't out. get that feeling at all oh, i got I'm kd sorry. out of that i mean I, really I've i missed, get that i do get that impression i've actually. missed kd's voice for the longest time i was hoping for like the last 10 years she'd be doing something pretty exciting and i haven't gotten anything but uh, when i heard her voice again i was just excited so I love this record. Dave, what's, give me, throw them. Uh, I got a huge list here, but I'm not going to oh. go through the whole list. I'll, uh, I'll hit a couple um, and call me partial, but uh, partial. Brian Whelan's Sugarland record uh, through and through is, is a solid one that I go to a lot. Um, there's a new one by La Serra. Uh, I've got that too. Which uh, is produced by Ryan Adams. I do find the uh, production a little tentative. Apparently that whole record was made in a couple of days. Yeah. Yeah, what I kind of walked away from this album with was the sound of the Smiths. Was it was just kind of like oozing out of some of these songs. There's it, certain it, tracks by them that like it, I walked away yeah, thinking it does sound like old, yeah, older Smiths tracks. Yeah, so well, that, Ryan Adams has really been on that Smith kick for quite a while. Yeah, that makes sense. So that was a very comfortable thing to walk away with. Like I just after the first listen, like wow, okay, I'm coming back. On the countryside, uh, the, Lucas Nelson and Promise of the Real. That record by Willie Sun is freaking phenomenal. I. Heavily recommend you guys check it out. Fantastic songwriting, and you definitely hear Willie's that that nasally thing in there that probably only comes from the Nelson DNA. It's just it's yeah. it's nice to know that the the torch has been passed, and that guy can play guitar. You know, it's very much in the vein of uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan at times. I've seen him play live several times, and that guy's got some talent, and he certainly had a good in-house teacher. Um, also in the country world, uh, the new record by Loretta Lynn, Full Circle, features an incredible. Uh, initial single that came off of it with uh, Elvis Costello. What else? Other band names I could just throw out there, Guided by Voices. The National appears on a, a Grateful Dead tribute album called Day of the Dead, which That's is, I think, an like amazing collection. multi-disc set. It's huge. Um, so if you're not into the dead, 
Um, perhaps this is a way to get in through more accessible bands that are up your alley. God, what else? Glenn Hansard, Iggy Pop, John Doe, The Arcs. Most recently, the big thing that I got turned on is to is a track called Masterpiece by Big Thief. Okay, well, there you go. Big Thief was going to be my surprise thing. Ooh. I've listened to that album about 30 times in the last two months, and I think it's by far the best album of the year. It's hard to describe what it sounds like. I think you would like it if you like Courtney Barnett. I love that's my like favorite the album first last year, actually. PJ Harvey albums. Mm-hmm. If she was country, which she's not, I could say you could throw a little Lucinda Williams in there. She's yeah, got a new album this year, too, by the way. It's a little stretch. Uh, my toppy, other than, than David Bowie, is uh, I, I make no excuses for it, but uh, Parquet Courts. That's um, a fantastic album. They, they can't do anything wrong. I think they could probably just come over and just record themselves reading the. Uh, the list of items that are on the agenda for C-SPAN next week, and I would still kind of go, oh, I like this. This is good stuff. So the, the, new, the new album is called uh, Human Performance, and, uh, I mean, they put these guys are just putting out records left and right. I'd like to see them compete with Robert Pollard as far as, like, a total output yeah, annually. Well, they, they're they're, they're bordering on control. Willie Nelson at this point. They're just putting out stuff left and right, and, and I don't think they've missed a step yet. So I'm going to be seeing in a couple of weeks in the small room at the observatory, which is a crime and a blessing. I'm so happy that it's going to be in there. But Very nice. Those guys are just rocking. Um, I've, I've mentioned it before on the show, uh, The Narrows by Grant Lee Phillips. Yeah. For people from L.A., He's one of our people, and we lost him to Nashville a couple of years ago. And the record reflects it a little bit, but not as much as you'd think. In a lot of ways, it sounds more like his uh, the softer side of his old Grant Lee Buffalo days. Mm-hmm. It's just a spectacular album. I mean, it's difficult to get through that 45 minutes without shedding a tear, though. And then uh, another one, uh, A Moonshaped Pool by Radiohead. Yeah. Yeah. It would be it would be very easy to say, eh, Radiohead, yeah, but yeah, it's a really solid record. It's a sol- It's just a solid album. They they put out something that's incredibly challenging, yeah. yet the world seemed to have understood it like immediately, and it's just beautiful. And what's funny about it is there's a bunch of songs on this, like you know, Burn the Witch. Well, they're actual songs. That's and Daydreaming. You know, what's funny though, those are songs that deserve to be on the greatest hits album that band will never put out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like it- hearing Johnny Greenwood's uh, musical score chops have woven their way into the band stuff yeah. really well that's true uh, does, does anybody know ty siegel yeah yeah it's, it's just it's, yeah. that's on mine emotional mugger i mean that's just yeah great. i haven't heard it yet. amazing oh, it's album. so good yeah, yeah that, that's another one that just makes me smile so gene you said two i don't know if we have time for both of them no <laughs> <laughs> well, brian Wheeland, sugarland and the uh the i don't care which, of course, it seems like we talked about the replacement. Oh, with uh, Paul Westerberg and uh, Juliana Hatfield? Yes. Oh. And it's, how, yes, how did I, I miss that? Tim and I yeah, are like, we, just, we look like we just got sideswiped. Oh, my God, you guys. Come on. This is Music Matters. I knew this. I expect you guys to know who the fuck yeah. that is. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to listen back to the show, and I'm going to take some notes. What do you just think of it? The couple of tracks I've heard I thought were just okay. I'll take Paul Westerberg's Just Okay over everybody else's best stuff. And I'm that way with Juliana Hatfield. And, and, and it's not her in the mix. But there's certain, for the most part, I like it. Again, it's just very concise stuff. It's right up the middle. And it's just very clear and kind of feels like it was just, you know, tossed off real quickly. Um, but the production is very clean. And I just feel like it's just kind of rock minimalism. That never quite drags. I don't know. I, I just, I just think it's, it's the type of thing that I was looking for the moment I found it. The other thing I really, really like, uh, and, and I haven't liked most of his 
most recent work. But the new Paul Simon album, I'm finding I enjoy a lot, mm. especially the song Wristband, which at, the, at first kind of seems like it's just kind of a jokey song about getting locked out of your own gig. But by the third verse, he opens the whole thing up to a lot of the social situations, the unrest that are happening right now in our country. And uh, he does it with a very deft touch. It, you know, Paul Simon writing some great grooves, and he's showing a, a bit of a funny bone, uh, which he could use. Uh, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and he's really pulling it off. I really, really like the material. Part. I'm glad to hear you say that, because I can tell you that last album I found was such a drag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the material on this one, I just think it's not forced at all, and uh, I'm really, really appreciating it. And also, uh, again, for 2016, I, I still think Sergio Simpson might have the record to be beat. Which one? Uh, Sturgill Simpson. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's on my the, list the, as well. Yeah. That, that might be tight. So, that... I know, and again, I, I talked about it on the last episode, but uh, it's as the, the rest of the calendar year goes on, that's still, I think, going to be, you know, it's going to be way up there on the, on, the, on the list. Yeah, well, you guys schooled me on that last episode. I was surprised... Um, how soulful it was. When I say soulful, I mean actually like Dat King yeah. horns. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and at the same time, mildly psychedelic. It's just there's so much going on there. Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, again, uh, and when you have a guy whose singing voice is that unique and, and, uh, and uh, singular, then you can kind of float from genre to genre and, and usually it won't suffer. His voice is the thing that keeps that whole thing together. And his point of view. And, and, uh, and possibly a nominee for album title of the year, too. A, a Sailor's <laughs> Guide to Earth. It just made me kind of go, huh? My favorite album title of the year, which uh, goes back to La Sera, Music for Listening to Music too. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's really good. Nice and meta. Yeah, it is. That, that encompassed a lot. Or Why Are You Okay by Band of Horses. Oh, that's a good yeah, one, too. Good but... one too. And I can't pronounce the one by Ray LaMontagne. Why? Is it symbols? And... It's like... You have to have a really thick beard, I think. And an education. <laughs> I don't drink nearly enough coffee for that. <laughs> All right. As we leave this segment, I'd like to play a new track for you. Well, new as of late last year. It's not 2016, but it's still some fine music from a gentleman named Mark Mason, otherwise known as M Square.
That was M squared with I Needs a We, the repeater mix. We'd like to thank you for listening to the show, and we'd also like to acknowledge the following folks for their contributions to this particular episode of Music Matters. The members of 1913, Victor DiLorenzo and Janet Schiff. You can find out more about them and their music by visiting 1913.com. Also, thanks to Lori Carson. To find out more about her written and musical world, please visit lauriecarson.com. We'd like to thank Cindy Wasserman of Dead Rock West. For more information about Dead Rock West and current tour dates, please go to deadrockwest.com. Of course, we'd like to thank our man on the street, Mr. Eugene Edwards. Try to catch him this summer on tour with Dwight Yoakam. For those interested in Under the Big Black Sun, the book by John Doe and Tom DeSavia and others, please visit thejohndoe.com to see how you can get your copy today. Also, thanks to Henry Rollins for that really cool voicemail. Special thanks to Mr. Rob Perez. To find out more about his music, please visit robperez.bandcamp.com. And finally, to find out more about the music of M Squared, also known as Mark Mason, please visit soundcloud.com forward slash mmasonmusic. The producers of Music Matters avidly support the efforts of Sweet Relief. The Sweet Relief Musicians Fund provides assistance to all types of career musicians who are struggling to make ends meet while facing illness, disability, or age-related problems. In other words, healing musicians in need. We've all received so much out of music, it's time to give a little back. Please head on over to sweetrelief.org to see what you can do today. All right, buddy. Go find good music. Thanks for listening, guys. Dream, baby, dream. And go to your county and state fairs and see some live music. You have been listening to Music Matters. For show notes, links, videos, playlists, and other music news, please visit www.musicmattershq.com. Thank you.